Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the One Short Podcast, the Sports Gazette's official cricket podcast. I'm Toby, as always joined by Ayush. How are you, mate? Great, I'm doing well and uh, yeah, I'm excited to have Laura and Evie with us here today as well. Exactly, two brand new guests onto the podcast. Evie, how are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thank you. Laura, good? Ready for your first day, your, well, your debut on the podcast? Yeah, I'm slightly apprehensive. I'm, not, I'm a, more of a football fan rather than a cricket fan, but I, I know a bit of cricket and I'm looking forward to being on. No, it should be it should be a good episode. We're going to talk a little bit about the England versus India Test match, the West Indies ODIs, and our brand well not brand new, our new cricket conundrums. Uh, where today we're going to be talking about trans cricket within transgender players within cricket, and the, well, the big debate that's been going on at the moment. And of course, we'll finish with our quiz at the end. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about the women's big bash, where the Adelaide Strikers beat the Brisbane Heat in a low-scoring thriller last weekend. Beth Mooney topped the run scoring charts for the fourth time in a row over the tournament and was absolutely amazing. Um, Ayush, I'll come to you first about this, but can you think of another player within cricket who's been so dominant within a specific tournament? Not really. I mean, Beth Mooney, and it's not just the BBL, it's been it's just her consistency in international cricket as well for Australia. A very big reason uh, for Australia to have dominated so much over the last so many years that she's been playing. And the Meg Lanning era, uh, which unfortunately Meg Lanning will not now be part of the Australian women's team, but I'm guessing Elisa Healy will be an able replacement for her. But yeah, talking about Beth Mooney, no, uh, so good. And she's, she's a big match player, isn't she? She just steps in when they need her the most. And she's done that, of course, you just read out those BBL stats, but uh, even for Australia and international cricket. She's that player they look for in the knockouts and in the finals. And yeah, definitely one of my favourite players in the world. No, yeah, she's been absolutely amazing the whole time. And I think one of the big differences I saw this, well, not this tournament, but, but generally for, for the English players is none of them really had a world of a tournament, unfortunately. Uh, Tammy Bowman was probably the best player out there. Um, scored 296 runs at just 21. Um, but Heather Knight, uh, Alice Capsey... Amy Jones, Sophia Dunkley, Mayabusha, Silver Brunt, we're all kind of similar totals of runs as well, not far below. I think for me, Tammy Beaumont's sort of most impressive thing was her strike rate, 120. Uh, she's not out playing in the India series at the moment, um, which has been maybe a, a cause for a debate. She's she's missed out on the T20 side for, for a little bit of a while, Evie, um, often because of her strike rate, and, and they don't think she can score at a fast enough rate. But 
this big bash and the hundred as well over the summer. She had a really good hundred, and what's called I think the what, first women's hundred hundred, um, and and was really really good. How do, do you think she could find a way back into the T Twenty side at some point? That is a good question, but at the moment I feel like they're breeding new young talent, and they need to give those players like Maya Bushier, who proved herself with Southern Brave. They're now trying to do like a balancing act in a way of trying to bring in those new players and get them used to the international stage. But maybe they are missing a bit of Tammy Bowman and what she can bring with all that experience. But you just got to try and juggle those two things. And yeah, it's such a shame because she's clearly like gotten better. She's focused on it. Like she's dealt with the rejection of not being on the team anymore. She's clearly come back and done amazing over the summer. So it does really call into question like... Maybe she's, she's not done yet. Maybe we shouldn't be bringing in too many new players. She's still got lots left in the tank. So, yeah, it's a tough one. And I wish I was a coach and I'd be able to give a definitive answer. <laughs> yeah, she is 32 right now. So she's still got a bit of time in her career. Probably mm. around for another four years, roughly 36. I feel like a sort of generic age for, for when players seem to retire. Um, but you did mention there's a lot of youth coming through as well. Danny Gibson had a really good tournament with the ball, as did Sarah Glenn from the sort of minimal opportunities she had when she came in um, later on throughout, both in their early 20s. Um, and there's sort of is slating to be a bit of a sort of change of the guard, um, as, as you mentioned there, Evie. Do you think this sort of puts England in a good position go- going forward? I think the series against Sri Lanka, for me, that's... For the current issue right now, it's about rebuilding from just that series mm. <laughs> and that, that performance. Um, so, yeah, it's hard to pin down what exactly went wrong for me. I'm still not entirely sure. But, yeah, I guess we have to see how this series goes. We've only had one match, so we can't say, oh, they've done X and Y better. I think we're going to have to look at it more like overall. Um, to Yeah, like, I don't want to speculate because we... It's, completely new environment they're playing in India it's completely different territory <laughs> it's a tough one because you, you want to see how the young players are going to face off against these Indian highly experienced players and there's a lot of threat from India so yeah it's, it's hard to tell and I'm just going to sit on the fence <laughs> <laughs> it's the easiest way it's the easiest way um, but yeah as you mentioned there the Sri Lanka series were at the end of last summer um, England really seemed to struggle to play against spin mm. which is quite a, well it's really key in India um, but earlier this week, they, they went 1-0 up in the T20 series. Danny Wyatt and Natsava Bunt both strummed 70s and an Amy Jones cameo pushing them close to 200. Uh, India fell 38 short, Shafali Verma passed 50. There wasn't much contribution elsewhere. And Sophie Eccleston took 3 for 15. I mean, she is absolutely world class. Um, Laura, you, you obviously, you know, you know Sarah Glenn well. Um, but also Sophie Eccleston, the England spin sort of quartet almost now with Charlie Dean in there as well and, and the number of spinners coming through Capsie bowling a bit as well how, how good is that sort of spinning options within the England setup? Yeah of course I think you want um, a kind of diversity in any in any squad and you want that depth because if you only have one spin option and they have an off day or you only have two and that's not quite working for the team of course you want those those different options in a team and I think it'd be a bit far to say I know Sarah Glenn well. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to put that rumor out there. But um, yeah, no, I've I've been a fan of Sarah Glenn, um, and I do think I think it's great in terms of especially what you were saying earlier in terms of that youth. Like we do have a kind of upcoming scene there as well. Um, so it's not just like you've got. I think Sophie Eccleston's obviously got experience regardless of age at this point. Like she's 
so experienced and so good and just like a joy to watch when you do go and see this England team play you know you're in for a good day when Sophie Eccleston's bowling um, and I think the others are potentially slightly less consistent um, but I think yeah again like depth is going to be good anywhere in any sports team and it's only something that can be praised. Ayush they as I, as I mentioned over the summer they struggled to play against spin but putting on 200 against the Indian side is, is hugely impressive. And their batting lineup on paper should be scoring loads of runs. They've got well, a good mix of experience. Heather Knight, Nats of Brunt have played for God knows how many years. Danny White, I think, is the most capped England T20 player. Um, and they have a lot of youth coming through as well. Do you think that this batting lineup should be sort of scoring against India and, and pushing 200 as they did? Definitely can. And they've even got depth because... Sophie Eccleston can bat as well, and she's she she didn't come into bat the other day, but she was sl- slotted to come in at nine. So yeah, they've got they've got depth, and uh, definitely, and you've got players who you th- want to be playing T20 cricket. Uh, Danny Wyatt, we saw what what she did. Nat Brun doing Nat Brun things as usual, and then they've got people you know down down the order as well. Amy Jones we know can hit the ball really hard and she can get score at a very fast rate. So definitely, I think if, you know, they would be really happy with 197, especially in these Indian conditions against spin-heavy team bowling in their own conditions. But I'm guessing with the kind of batting setup that they have and the players that they have, they would definitely want to push for 200. And I think they'll do it. I think they'll do it in one of the games. England's women's central contracts were also announced last week. Marbusha and Danny Gibson are the only two additions to the 16-player um, list. Uh, Catherine Silverbrunt tiring and Freya Davis dropping out as well. Shows sort of almost more what, what a good squad they have as well. They don't need to keep rotating in and out of players. Like I remember during the, well, not even that long ago, during Joe Root's test reign as, as men's captain, there was basically every year they had new players coming in, players dropping out. No one could sustain themselves whereas Evie this, this England women's setup has been absolutely amazing they have the same players over and over again no one even if they are struggling they're still getting options as well and still still getting a chance to prove themselves do you think that this is such a good reason why England women's cricket has been on the up recently I can't really pinpoint what they did well in the Ashes but I guess it felt like they were more coherent or like more as a team but then at the same the problem is that I mean a problem that I've noticed is that they tend to rely on single players to bring out like, the start, the match-winning performances like Nat Silverbrunt or Danny Wyatt. Um, and maybe it's, there were some matches where that was the case, but then there were signs that there were other players like coming up and bringing contributions, match-winning contributions. So for me, I think it's to what extent have they stopped relying on single players just like every like cl- a collapse and then just relying on one player to come and take it forward. The people who've just been given contracts about being able to foster that match winning capability. Capa- yeah, exactly. In those players as well. And a central contract for them is showing commitment from the ECB that they believe that they can do that. Um, so yeah, I guess the Ashes showed signs that they were all capable of match-winning performances, and I think that, as you said, they've got te- like they've got a significant number of players who've been around for years, which is really good, and they've also managed to get players who are young but also have got so much experience. So yeah, I think it's looking really good, to be honest. I'm yeah, I'm quite excited, and then especially Tash Farrant as well, who's 
been centrally contracted again and just the complete whirlwind of injuries that she's had. Um, it will be exciting to see like, if she gets to have a go uh, with things from recovering with her injury as well. Definitely. I think considering what she played for England two years ago, got injured quite badly and hasn't actually been able to, to come back into the setup properly, I think. Um, which I think is another, another good reason why they have such a good team bond, I'd say, from, from the outside it looks like anyways. They all seem to get on really well. They're all posting TikToks with, with each other all around the world in the big bash, wherever they might be. Um, and I think just having a good time, it, it maybe felt like in the Ashes, the Australian setup was almost a bit too intense and they weren't able to have a, have a good time outside of the cricket. And particularly when it wasn't going well for the Australian side, it's obviously going to keep internalising it and, and not really help them relax around it. Whereas maybe this sort of setup that Heather Knight has, um, or has created, sorry, mm. can really help in that way. Yeah, uh, I, I love the Lauren Bell TikToks. <laughs> They're so she cute. loves them, I think, as well. <laughs> no, I find them so entertaining. It's like a way that humanises the teams. I think more teams should do it, but it's just nice to see a different side to them. And like even the younger... Well, I saw a lot of Southern Brave TikToks because Lauren Bell, obviously, but it was just nice to see them humanised and show that there's not just a side to the cricket, which I think is quite... It's a good asset to have in a team because they can... I don't know, there's less of a divide between, like having to feel being relaxed and then coming on and then having to be forced into high intense pressure scenarios like maybe there's that sense of I'm not sure because I'm not an England cricketer but maybe there's the sense of like it's not too big of a change like you're just still having fun um, like from going off the pitch to on the pitch I don't know but no, I, th I think that's a great facet to uh, like Evie mentioned to have you know things like that going on in the team because it reminds me of Jamima Rodriguez and the Indian team because you see she's very good with her social media game as well and she has other talents as well. I think she plays the ukulele or the guitar, one of those things. And then she posts so many videos with the others, Smriti Mandana and uh, Parman Preet Kaur and some of the others. So it's fun. It's great to see, uh, you know, that even they want to take the pressure off at times and not just, you know, stay in that bubble of all of all the, the talk from the outside. They are, it's, it's already not easy with people talking all kinds of random stuff in the world, but especially when it comes to the women's game. So it's, it's good to see them having fun, you know, keeping it lighthearted at times, even when they are in there playing World Cup cricket. So yeah, good to see. I agree with Evie. Yeah, I think it's one of my favourite things about women's sport in particular is they are so much more humanised and humanise themselves a lot more than the men's athletes who almost sort of want to be considered emotionless and, and unflappable and whatever it might be. And in some ways, I think it just means you'd never get to know them as well. And I, I don't know how, what you think of this, Laura, but with the sort of women's sport generally as well, they are so much happier to be themselves on camera and relaxed about it. And it, and it definitely comes across a lot better, I'd say. Yeah, I think women's sport has kind of started from a very different place that men's sport has. And I think it has encouraged this kind of familiarity with the fans. And I think that has both its pluses and minuses because you have... Um, and I think maybe more so in women's football, I think women's cricket will definitely get to the point where, you know, if, if men's, men's athletes let you have that access, I think it would cause problems because there is currently, sadly, a lot more fans around it, which increases the attention. And I think we're starting to see that with women's, women's players at the moment. I think what it does do is it allows access to the game. And so we really need it at the moment. And that is the main way that women's sport 
because it's growing in this age of social media, is going about to kind of mobilise increased fans, mobilise increased support. That is how it's doing it, by humanising the players. And that, I think that's lovely in some ways. I think, as you say, it's like a great facet of the game. But I think there's like the flip side to it, where these women's players aren't getting paid as much as the men. They're not getting as much protection as the men. They're not getting as much media training as the men. And it can become quite dangerous in some ways because they're giving so much of their lives away to gain the support and there's an expectation on them that they do that, that they're almost giving too much away and they can't afford the protection, they can't, they don't have access to those resources. So I think there's a very fine line to be trodden. I think women's cricket, it seems to be doing it great at the moment. I think women's football is potentially hitting a kind of line where the, those discussions need to be start to have in a more... Um, kind of conscious of player welfare side of it. Do you think as women's sport continues to grow, it might morph more into the sort of the male way of doing it and athletes becoming more insular and not showing themselves off as much? I hope that women's sport retains some of it because I think it's great. And I think sharing kind of some of the human side of sport is absolutely what we want to do. And as journalists, we want that side of them. We want to tell those stories and that's really important. And I think there's almost too too little of that in men's sport. So I hope we retain some of that. But I do think, I mean, we're seeing it now um, in women's football. They've had to start making announcements at the start of games saying players won't be signing shirts players won't be coming over to take photos at the end of games because there's signs demanding can I have your shoes can I have your shirt and they can't afford that for a start um, but there's increased expectations on them and I'm sure that will start to feed into and trickle down into the women's cricket as well um, and I think on that regard and having that closeness with fans after games it will have to start to go the way of of men's sport because it's simply just not kind of logistically possible. I guess to a certain extent, cricket doesn't have that same issue in the men's game as it is anyway. So it's probably easier for the women's side of it to to stay how they are and, and they won't feel pressured in, in any sort of way or as much um, as maybe in women's football. Um, on the other side of the world, England have been playing the West Indies in ODI series, currently drawn one all. Uh, in the first game, England put on what looked to be a good total of 325. Harry Brook made 70, others sort of chipping in around him. Um, and it was definitely flattered by Sam Curran and Bryden Cass cameos at the ends of 30s each, um, off not many balls, which was very, very useful. Uh, but a magnificent Shy Hope 100 carried the West Indies to victory with an over to spare. And it was a slightly disappointing performance from what is a new look England team, Ayush. Um, they have a similar batting lineup and, and sort of player lineup to 2019, I'd say, in a lot, a lot more similar roles. Um, but it it didn't really seem to click, did it? Yeah, I mean the first the first game was kind of an extension of the troubles that they've been having at the they were having at the World Cup in India, and uh, yeah, they did put up a good score, three twenty five. But I think it's it's the bowling that really struggled in that game in the first game. Uh, you can't really blame them for what Shea Hope did because if you look at his records, he's just so consistent in this format. I think he is. I would put him in among what, definitely the top five, if not the top three players in the world in the ODIs. But yeah, I think the bowling, especially, I get that, that you know, England used just five bowlers in that first ODI. Uh, and three of them were really young newcomers. I think it was Gus Atkinson, Bryden Kass, and Rehan Ahmed. 
so yeah, it's it, it's a learning phase for them as well. A bit, but Sam Curran was the one who got attacked the most. So it's it's just when the more senior players, so to say, have to be clicking, they weren't clicking. When it comes to the batting, definitely again, youngsters def at the top of the order itself. He spoke about Will Jacks, Phil Salt opening the batting earlier, and they're well, especially Salt. I think in that first game, Crawley, Duckett, all of these guys again. It's just now with the changes that have happened since the World Cup. So they're doing that as well. They're, you know, it, it, it's the young players who are still getting used to this new setup as well. And to add to that, Josh Butler's form is not helping them. Having said that, he was really good in the second game. He saw them over the line. It was a much needed 50, but that's not enough. They need guys like Butler, Livingston, and Curran in the batting also to step up. So, yeah, it's, it's tough when it comes to England right now. I think it's going to take some time for them to, again, really settle into it. I guess that's the one hope is that they have four years to the next World Cup. They can take their time to build a squad and, and sort of somewhat be a bit relaxed about who, who's scoring runs now and, and take their time to really work out where the world-class players are in, in that squad. Uh, in the second test, in, uh, ODI, sorry, England looked much better. Uh, they skittled the West Indies for 202. Curran bouncing back from what was the worst English ODI bowling figures for 0 for 98 to get 3 for 33 in that second game. Will Jacks also was given a bowl, as, as you mentioned, um, and he wasn't really using the first ODI, which was a slight surprise to, to many of the fans, many of the pundits. Um, but the sort of selection seems to be working well. Do you think that they're choosing the right squads to stay with the same kind of philosophy that Owen Morgan had, be really aggressive, bat really deep? Or do you think almost moving over to, to what the Indians did in uh, South Africa in the World Cup, where they sort of batted slow to begin with and exploded towards the end and sort of capitalised on what could be a really, really good death-hitting um, sort of team with Livingston, Brook and Butler, if they come in later on rather than in the 10th overs as they were in the World Cup? Yeah, I don't know. I'm seeing kind of a combination of both. But definitely they want to emulate what Owen Morgan did with his side after 2015. And right now it's going to be too easy, uh, sorry, too, I would say, soon to judge or too soon to decide which way they're going. But, you know, just two games since the end of the World Cup. But I don't know, somewhere I'm, I'm seeing a mixture of both those approaches in how they're going right now. And I think this is, I've liked the selection so far. I've, I've liked the young players who've come in. I spoke about Rehan Ahmed having, you know, needing a lot of time as well uh, in this team because I think in this series he is the main spinner in the ODIs and uh, he was very good in the second one. Two for 40, I think, in his 10 overs or something like that. Livingston's been good. I think he was decent with his bowling earlier as well and uh, he's been good in this first two games as well. So, yeah. More answer to really answer your question, I think I'm somewhere seeing kind of a mixture of the two approaches. Uh, but they would really be better sticking to, you know, continuing the way Owen Morgan did it. And we saw what they did in 2019. Yeah, very much so. I mean, Will Jacks, Harry Brook, and Josh Butler all made runs uh, to help chase down inside 30 overs that 202 uh, we'll talk a little bit more over the next couple podcasts about this series they've got t20s i think after as well um and it should be fairly interesting to see how it all goes <laughs>
However, we're going to be moving on to our weekly cricket conundrum, uh, where this week we're talking about trans athletes within cricket, um, and specifically the ICC's ruling, um, or the change of ruling about trans athletes playing within the women's game in particular. Um, so they, uh, they made the ruling that any player who has now gone through male puberty prior to transitioning uh, will be excluded, um, which is quite a big change from, from what they had. They've been looking into it over the last year, I think. And it seems somewhat targeted. Daniel McGahey uh, was the first international trans player to play. They played for Canada, um, played six T20s during the ICC World Cup qualifiers earlier um, this year. Um, and now under the new regulations, she wouldn't be allowed to play any international uh, women's cricket. Uh, the England and Wales Cricket Board, uh, their current regulations for domestic matches state that participation of trans players are to be re reviewed on a case-by-case -case basis, um, though the policy is yet to be tested in elite county cricket. Um, I mean, I'll open it up to you guys really, but I assume everyone is slightly concerned and confused by by the rulings. I'll, I'll start with you, um, Evie, about, about all of this. It was a very rash, I think, um, from from the ICC in this and, and slightly confusing really that they allowed it for a little bit having looked into the regulations last year um, and then it's been the second that a trans athlete has been allowed to play or been selected to play internationally they feel like they have to change the rules and and uh, are almost going against what a lot of the um, what a lot what everyone else is saying and, and everyone else is really confused by it all yeah I think the ban insinuates that there is a flood of trans women coming for cricket there's just so many and even if that were that's not a problem but it's, do you know what I mean it's it's creating like implicitly like um a rhetoric or whatever that there's just so many of them there is one there was one there was one international trans women cricketer one I just think that doesn't line up with the ban. If you're banning things, you that's normally because there's like an overload of something. But yeah, um, there's so many routes we could go down with this. But yeah, for me, the big point, the ban, it doesn't, there's no evidence in terms of the number of trans women competing. Just point one. Like there's so many points we could go through this, but point one, are there loads of trans women threatening in quote marks? <laughs> threatening women's cricket no so already at that hurdle the ban doesn't hold up for me there's several ways we could go from here but yeah I mean one of the the way the ICC's sort of laid it all out was they had sort of different principles as to to why they're they're banning trans athletes um their third principle was to do with fairness and sort of allowing the best players to play international cricket um was sort of their their ideas behind it, Laura, and it seems a bit of an interest, well, not interesting, one a weird um, point from them that they're thinking it's almost fair to not allow transgender athletes really down to play any international cricket. If, if there was any sort of option for them to play international cricket, they, I guess you could maybe somehow perhaps see that it would be fair, but there is now no route for any trans players to play internationally 
Yeah, and I mean, the whole concept of fairness, like, what does that even mean? It just feels like a bit of a cop-out. Like, I can't define why I'm actually doing this, so I'm going to label it under fair and be done with it. And, like, no one can actually come up with what a definition of fair is. Like, I think it's probably one of the Oxbridge entrance questions. Like, what does it mean to be fair? And the fact that they're just wielding this term and actually stopping people from playing sport, because that's fundamentally what it is. Like, Danielle Magehi now doesn't have a route to play cricket. She can't play with the gender that she feels she is and the gender that she is, in fact. And, like, whatever you define fairness as, I don't think that's what it is. Um, So to kind of, yeah, just wield this term in a way that's completely political, completely imbued with this kind of exclusionary idea of what it means to be a woman and to say that that's some kind of threat to women actually like all this ideology all this belief that trans women shouldn't be included in anything is is only reinforcing the patriarchy is only reinforcing that there is only this one way to be a man and there's this only one way to be a woman and that is reinforcing the kind of structures that allow the current system as it is in all its unfairness and inequality to persist. And I think it's just a backward step for them to make this ruling. No, very much so. It it seems quite unfairly that it's targeting one player in particular as well, which in itself isn't fair. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, again, goes against everything they've sort of said. Aish, what, what do you sort of make of all of this, the, the ruling that there was one international player now no longer able to play Danielle wasn't just going into international cricket, smacking sixes, 150 metres, bowling 130 miles an hour, as many sort of as many transphobes effectively would would sort of say, um, and that it's unfair that a man could come in and, and bowl 90 mile an hour to or 100, 100 mile an hour, whatever it might be, um, in the women's game. What what do you sort of make of, of all of this rule and the, the ruling by the ICC? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I could have said it better than Evie and Laura did right now. But yeah, isn't cricket is one of those sports where it, whatever the you know their argument of uh, an advantage is an unfair advantage, whatever they're calling it, is that, I mean, I don't think it's that relevant in cricket, right? Especially, it's not one of those individual sports like athletics where. Uh, if you're talking about that unfair advantage or something that's really apparent and people who have gone through male puberty would have, uh, you know, that a bigger advantage than the women competing in the women's section. So, yeah, so cricket already is a sport that neutralizes that advantage, so to say, to an extent. And this ICC ruling, I think, what also shows there the kind of insensitivity towards uh, trans people and the community was just a few months ago they kind of changed the rules a little bit around which promoted the inclusion of transgender uh, athletes in cricket and then just a few months later they're saying oh, okay sorry we've changed our minds so you're you're letting a community believe that oh okay we can follow uh, other trans cricket players can say that oh okay we can follow Danielle and uh, she's got to play. She's made a debut for Canada. She's played a few games. We can also kind of... Uh, this, this is positive for us as well. So they are hopeful. And then very quickly, you're shutting it down for them. You're saying that, oh, okay, sorry, we've changed our minds. 
sorry, you're not going to play anymore. So I think the, the kind of timing with which they did everything, not just this announcement, but tweaking the rules a little bit that allowed Danielle to play and then kind of completely uh, posing, imposing a complete ban, that also shows insensitivity from the ICC's part. And not great. And I think the announcement of the ban also came during Transgender Awareness Week, was it? Or just before or just after it? So again, that adds to it. It's just think through. I mean, even if you're announcing this ban, just think through about the timing as well. So not great. Just And that's an understatement, saying not great. Yeah, I think I just want to jump in there and just reiterate that a ban is not just affecting the sport that it effects a ban is insinuating multiple messages multiple like horrible um, assumptions about trans people that filter down into domestic cricket so it's not just about international cricket this decision will filter down and we're already looking at a context where there is a lot of transphobia well anyway I'm talking from a UK-centered perspective let me just acknowledge that but in the UK like the hate crimes 2022 to 2023 have increased by 11% and all the other discriminatory hate, all the other hate crimes like racism, homophobia all went down. So it's in a context of politicians also using very transphobic language. So yeah, particularly in the UK, a ban with, with all of that context, a ban isn't just affecting sport you've really got to consider as policymakers how this is going to filter down how trans people are going to feel in cricket are they going to feel welcome no they won't like maybe like maybe in isolated cases there are clubs that are hopefully going to step forward and be active in their support for trans people but there's kind of the assumption now that you're not welcome in the sport anymore and maybe that will affect i hope it doesn't but that you could speculate that that might lead to more discrimination potentially hate crimes within cricket clubs to an extent one of the other um, priorities listed by the ICC was safety. Um, from a devil's advocate point of view, Laura, I'll come to you, but they, they effectively are saying that men, if a man were to play cricket against a woman and they're bowling 90 mile an hour, um, they are just more likely to injure or hurt a woman. And effectively, in, more likely than they are to injure a, a man in the same situation which seems slightly odd in itself do you think that this is just another excuse from the ICC to try and get their point across it very much sounds like that um because it just doesn't feel very backed up like especially in this context it's just how how is it more dangerous like do men suddenly have like extra like armor that you've not told us about like is that does that exist that 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 like met people that were born as a male like are they born with like somehow thicker skin that if they get a, a cricket ball bowled at them fast they'll be able to survive it more or like also the fact that like they're not taking into the fact that these athletes have medically transitioned that has an impact that and and also the fact that it, it isn't any less dangerous or like whether you're playing with men or you're playing with women the chances of getting injured are pretty much the same it's just we see hyperbole around instances where that hasn't been the case and a we've not even seen that ever in international cricket that hasn't been the case we haven't seen anyone get injured from a trans woman playing against women in international cricket so what they're basing this off i do not know um i guess 
what we've seen recently, most recently in the news, I don't think there are actually any examples from cricket, but we've seen this one kind of hysteria in in a lower league football in, in South Yorkshire, I think it is, where a, a player got injured um, as a result of a trans woman. But I think there'll be so many more incidents where women have been injured because another woman has tackled them or a man has been injured because another man has tackled them or a woman has been injured because a man has tackled her or a man has been injured because a woman has tackled her. It doesn't matter what your gender is. You're going to get injured if you play sport. The likelihood is, like, that's sport. You're putting yourself up for those risks. And to say that is a result of trans women being in sport is just transphobia. Um, it's it's kind of informed by a warped perspective, by a perspective that's not willing to go and accept what what is actually the case and it feels like a skewed perception of reality only kind of incentivized to create hate um so yeah i think it certainly just seems like another excuse to answer your question ayush there now isn't any sort of route for transgender women there, there wasn't any domestically as it was really there aren't um any transgender specific leagues there aren't anything like that and the ecb obviously have a have a different policy looking at it on a case-by-case basis but so far haven't had to have, haven't had to look at it. Will the ICC now create a separate transgender international cricket, do you think? It doesn't look like that they're in, they want to even try to do something like that. That's the thing. I mean, uh, one of those arguments, you know, that, that talk more about, uh, you know, fairness that we were talking about, it says that, you know, the physiological differences between trans women and cis women where, uh, you know, I don't know, they're saying that trans women would have this advantage over, uh, uh, you know, in women's cricket by doing, or in women's sport, uh, generally by, you know, in this way or this another way, or they bring up so many of these different factors that you were mentioning, which are excuses. But how would you know whether, for sure, whether trans women are actually having these, uh, you know, these advantages whether you do not, if you do not give them the opportunity in the first place. You know, as soon as one player has come in, so Danielle came in, I think she played six matches in her career, that's it, six international matches. Her career's over and everyone who were aspiring, uh, you know, to join her and play for international teams or wherever as well, they've also been kind of told that the door is shut for you. So how do you, how do you know for sure whether these advantages that, you know, everyone's assuming that, uh, you know, trans a- athletes will have this advantage or that advantage over others if you're not exclu- if you're not including them in the first place. So, yeah, it's, it doesn't look like the ICC wants to be the first as well to go and, be, to go and say that, okay, we're going to have a separate format or a separate, uh, you know, league or a separate... Uh, you know, we were going to have trans athletes play a separate event altogether or play separate series or tournaments altogether. Because given that the way they've handled these things, I don't see that happening. And I don't see right now them having the courage to become the first ones to do it. No, exactly. I, I think one of my favorite things about cricket as well is that kind of anyone can play. You don't have to be like rugby, six foot six and run 100 meters in. 10 seconds and, and whatever it might be you kind of you look at international cricket 
the, the highest level of the game and, and everyone is completely different shapes and sizes and physicalities and whatever. And you have sort of ultra athletes who might play, but you also have someone like Paul Sterling who by his own sort of meaning isn't an ultra athlete. He enjoys being more relaxed and, and has, has a bit more fun while playing international cricket by the looks of it. But Evie, this sort of is almost saying that uh, trans women will have a huge advantage over cis women Physically, maybe that we, we don't um, sort of depends on on how they look into it, but but technically as well, that their skill level surely will there, therefore also be so much higher is what the ICC are effectively saying. Yeah, and I don't know what evidence there is for that view. Every academic article I have read, well, some of them have literally said that there is no evidence of the impact of. So it's it's quite nuanced. It's the impact of male puberty in certain areas of sporting performance and they've just not found so like you know it can be broken down into stamina or so I don't have the the terminology but it's like different forms of sporting performance and the data has shown that the effects of male puberty don't really actually impact that much so I would really encourage listeners to go and read the academic literature because they can articulate it in a much better specifically the male advantage point they can articulate it much better than I could but yeah, from what I've researched, there's very little evidence of the male advantage affecting affecting specific factors in sporting performance. But also, like, when you look at Danielle, when she played, was she smacking sixes every ball? No, she wasn't. She was averaging, I think, under 20. 30 or something. Yeah, it yeah. Was, yeah 19. And I'm like, if you actually, it's very, it needs to be more nuanced conversation. If you look at how she scored her shots, they were likely to be very, like, carefully timed boundary shots. Um, shots that every, like, you just think about. You're not, like, she wasn't smacking it left, right and centre, which this band sort of insinuates that this, like, um, if you're assigned male at birth, you've just got this advantage to suddenly just bowl the ball at, like, 100 miles an hour. It's just not the case. Um, so, yeah, I just... I, I really don't know what... So the, the, the ICC chief executive said the process was founded and the decision was founded in science. I just... I've just not seen that. <laughs> I don't know what that science is. Um, but, yeah, I would say consult the academic literature because it gives you a much more nuanced perspective and treats the subject with much more respect than it currently has in the public debate. Uh, what do we think about, you know, Danielle or other athletes as well, uh, you know, taking this forward legally? Because if this goes to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, uh, the proof of burden will lie on the organization and not the athlete. I know it's, of course, it's easier, it's much easier said than done to go through all of this legal process for uh, an individual as well, but yeah, I mean, the proof of burden will lie on the organization if they do take it to the CAS. So, yeah, that's that's one good thing, at least. that it's, it's Again, I mean, while the athlete has already gone through all of this, they don't even have uh, to prove, you know, that, okay, why should we be included? It's upon the organization to uh, kind of tell or kind of come up with really solid proof of why we think that they shouldn't be included. Yeah, I think you've made the exact point that I was thinking, which is they're saying that it's founded in science, but 
the ban is not supported by their evidence. Like, in order to provide evidence for a ban, the evidence needs to be huge. And they've just not even given that in the news post. It just says they've not given a breakdown of, we found X, Y, Z research. Like, they've just not met the burden of proof at all. Just even if you're looking at it from a scientific perspective, ignoring all the social impact and everything else. They just not they haven't actually met the physical burden of proof which they should in order to justify this ban. I think a legal process would be really interesting as well because I think when you bring in a legal process, I think A, it would be interesting to kind of, if they were able to dissect all this and dissect actually what is motivating this, what what are you basing this off? And I'd love to see that and I think it would become more out in the open if there was a legal proceeding. But I think the issues with that is that that's still taking place within a political environment and science takes place within a political environment and kind of law takes place within a legal environment. And who who is sat on that court of arbitration for sport? And we've seen Castus and Menu go through that and it's not always been kind of the result that you would hope or you would expect from those kind of proceedings. And I think, I personally think this cricket one is even more clear cut perhaps um, from my perspective of I don't know why she's not being included but I do think there are also kind of just problems with the political environment at the moment that we're seeing that there is this kind of tendency to just find the evidence even if that evidence has to be twisted even if that science has to be taken from a place where it, it kind of has um, other influences behind it that's not to say the science isn't correct but that's saying they're asking the wrong questions because you can ask questions of science and get the the kind of answers that you want um so i think it would just have to be really careful. i'm not saying that of course i'm the core of arbitration for sport i'm sure has due process etc but i do think there is that kind of understanding that if you did enter a legal process you'd also have to take that into account it will be interesting if someone does move the cas on this uh, I would love to see what kind of excuses or what I mean. I'm sure there'd be there definitely organisations like the ICC and other sporting organisation organisations will be worried because, again, reiterating that the burden of proof is on them. It'll be interesting to see what they come up with because, yeah, it doesn't look like what they have right now, or uh, you know, the thought process that all these organisations are coming to this with. They really have enough to fulfill that that proof no very much so i think what we've basically concluded from that is the icc are in a well a wrong position first of all but also if if and when hopefully danielle and and i'm sure she'll be backed by canadian cricket um or you'd hope she'd be backed by the canadian cricket board that um that if they take it to a legal process they at least have a, a very good leg to stand on and will hopefully be able to overturn it and it's just not sending the right messages for cricket around the world to to loads of well, thousands of people out there, millions of people out there, um, who are obviously being pushed to the side and and effectively being discriminated against. Um, anything else to add from you guys before we move on? I guess I think it's interesting the role that journalists play in all this because you could argue that there's been a complete lack of uh, action from journalists in making kind of the conversation around trans inclusion in sport more accessible to readers like 
for me, I've had to look at academic articles. Not everyone can just go and Google an academic article and look through very complicated arguments. And it's just like, you, that's the stuff you do in a degree. Not everyone, like, do you know what I mean? Like, academic writing isn't the most accessible format for taking in information and learning new things for everyone. So I almost feel as journalists, the industry has completely let down trans people in not making the debate much more nuanced and informing people of the nuanced ways of this like conversation and it's kind of just become like basically all the voices I've heard are just ban trans women and yeah I feel like journalists have really let trans people down in the sense that they've not made that information more accessible to to readers and fans of cricket yeah that's a great point right I think we'll uh, we'll end that debate or no was it the cricket conundrum there um, for this week and we'll move on to our quiz but um, please get in touch with any questions you might have obviously Laura and Evie are, are very knowledgeable in, in that and thank you Laura for joining us um, on the Cricket Conundrums and the podcast today um, and hopefully we'll be back very shortly With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere Dearly beloved we are gathered here today to Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On to the quiz. And I'll have Evie versus Ayush. We're going to be doing a little 1v1 table tennis style um, I will give you guys a topic and you will then take turns trying to name players that fit into this category. So it might be, it, this is won't be the first one, but it might be name players from the 2005 Ashes. Um, and you then have to go take turns naming players who played in it. Are you guys ready? Not quite, but okay. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. We'll start with um, what will hopefully be a somewhat easy one. We're going to go for England women's T20i cricketers. I want you to name players who have more than 50 appearances in the T20i game for England. Most of them, well, a lot of them, still playing now, I'll say, because it's obviously quite a recent development inside cricket. Evie, you can go first. Do they have to be active? or? No, no, it can be from any, any generation. Charlotte Edwards. Charlotte Edwards is on there, correct. She has 95 caps. T20 international caps. T20 international. Caps. Nat Silverbrunt. Nat Silverbrunt is also on there. She's second. 112. Second. Yeah. Uh, Danny Wyatt. Is top, as I mentioned, I think possibly earlier in the show. Uh, 149 matches. Oh, sorry. Um, Nat Silverbrunt isn't isn't second. Sorry, she's third. 111. Oh. Sophie Eccleston. Sophie Eccleston is on there. Yes, 73 caps. Evie, back to you. Amy Jones? Amy Jones is on there, yeah. More than Eccleston. Wow. 91 caps. Really? Playing That's for a long huge time. Blind. 
It's because T20 cricket has been so much bigger recently. They've been playing been 10, 20, best part of 20 probably every year in the last couple yeah. couple years. Are you sure over to you? I want to say Catherine Silverbrand. She's number two. That's what, number two. That's why I got, got slightly confused on the list. She's only 112 matches. So it's just one more for Nat to overtake her wife. Anya Shrubsall. Anya Shrubsall. Has played 78 matches, yes. Nicely done. Are you... uh, it's a tough one now. Okay. I'm, I'm really struggling here. I have quite a few names, but I know all of them have not played. Yeah. <laughs> I know all of them have not played 50. Have a guess. For sure. It's no, the only way. You have, no. to, you have to go for one of them, Aish. No, the ones I know have all definitely not played 50. I'm going to have to press you, as they would say. Oh, uh, God. In a okay. quiz. I'm going to try to. Heather Knight. Heather Knight is on there. <laughs> Correct. It took like it took me hours to get there. Slightly I don't know why wrong. I couldn't think of the captain. Mm. But yeah. Uh, Wait, Sarah, Sarah Taylor. Is on there, yes. Sarah Taylor. Ninety caps. Mm. Played a lot. Okay. Oh, you should have to be really quick. Okay. I feel like you might be might be struggling. There might okay, be. Okay. I think there's one be. name. I think that, that this name could be there. Sophia Dunkley. Has she played fifty? She's played. 47. Oh. <laughs> that's, she, she's that's, ex- that's what I thought. That's why I was yeah. not going with Sophia Dunkley's name earlier because I I was thinking, okay, I thought she would be like 41, 42-ish. But then, okay, I was running out of names. I had to go with it. Big names you missed were Jenny Gunn and uh, Tammy Beaumont. Tammy Beaumont. Li- Li- Lydia Greenway. Tammy Beaumont. No, no one said Tammy Beaumont. Okay, so I was just thinking about what we were talking about Tammy yeah. Beaumont earlier. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Sophia Dunkley was next, so she needs to play three more. No one else is between her and 50 caps, so she was one off. She's 47 years old. 47, yeah. So if we do this, um, if we do this, uh, another episode with the exact same question Mm. in about a few months' time, then she'll be on the list, I'm sure. (laughs) Right, question number two. We're going to go with England women ODI top run scorers. I want players who have scored a thousand ODI runs for England. Scored Anyone who scored a, at least a thousand runs. Nat Silverbrunt. Nat Silverbrunt is on there, yes. She has 3,400 yeah. ODI runs. Heather Knight. She is also on there, 3,700 runs. Okay, I'm going to go with a gamble here. Danny White. Uh, she's 1,800 runs. Oh. Evie, back to you. Amy Jones? Yes, 1,600. Just below Danny Wyatt on the list. Just stuff. Okay, we've got, we got Heather Knight, we've got Danny Wyatt, we've got Nat Silverbrand, we've got Amy Jones. Should I, should I give Sophia Dunkley another? I don't think she's on there. Okay, I'm going with a gamble. Sophia Dunkley. She is not on the list, I'm afraid. Um, so that's 2 0 to Evie. Running away wow. with it. Yeah. Um, you could have had Charlotte Edwards, Sarah Taylor, Tammy Beaumont again, <laughs> uh, Lydia Greenway, <laughs> Tammy Beaumont, uh, Lauren Winfield Hill. Oh God, yeah. Catherine Silverbrunt as well. Thousand Catherine, runs. Catherine. Thousand runs. She has one thousand and ninety. That is a slave. It's because she's played one hundred and forty-one matches. That's unfair. That's unfair. Averages eighteen with the bat. No DI cricket. Oh, but she's got over a thousand runs. That's not bad at all. Very much so. 
Right, we're, we're moving away from specifically the England-centric um, now. So we're going on to women's T20 generally. Okay. I would like the most runs. So they need to have scored at least 1,500 women's T20 Meg Lanning. runs. Meg Lanning is second. 3,400. Marizan Cap. Marizan Cap. Should be on there. Surely. Of course. Surely. <laughs> Can't see her. Marizan Cap doesn't. No. She has oh. 1,046, I'm afraid, Evie. Ayusha's point. Back into Devastating. This. So the highest is Susie Bates with 4,067. Oh, of course. Uh, Sophie, Sophie Devine, Devine has to be. Yeah. Sophie yeah. Devine is fifth. With 3,100. Yeah. Harman Preet Core up there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah. Stefani Taylor, number yeah. three. Ooh. Mandana, of course. DeAndre Dottin. Atapatu, Shrinking Captain. Elise Perry's not on there. She is on there. She's a bit lower down because she doesn't play that much T20 anymore. Um, mm, yeah. Well, she didn't play for a little bit. Right. Next, we're on to women's ODI matches. I would like most wickets. They need to have at least ooh, let's go for 100 Jalan Goswami number one she is number one with 255 yeah. ODI wickets that's huge Evie Catherine Silverbrand she's on there 170 number five on the list Great. Megan Shoot Megan Shoot I think could be a very good call ooh that's a good point Megan Shoot she is. She has 115. Not that as many as maybe. I, th- I would have thought more. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Evie, back to you. Anya Shrubsoul? Anya Shrubsoul has 106. She is safe. Oh, God. 100 ODI wickets, is it? 100 ODI wickets, yes. Elise Perry. Elise Perry. Has to be there. She is on there, yes. Yeah, yeah. 162. Does Sophie Eccleston have over 100? She should. I think she's in the 90s. No, no, I think she is. Of course she is. She has... Sophie Eccleston has 92. Oh. I'm afraid. That's tough. That is tough. That that levels it to all. Well, this will be the decider then. Let's go for... The highest runs in an innings. So I want you to name me players who have made 150 in ODI cricket. Amelia Kerr. Amelia Kerr is top 232. Yeah, what an innings that was. I'd say... I think, was she 17 when she did it? She was 17? I think 17 or 18. Something like that, yeah. She was... Not more than 18 for sure. I'm going to lower it a little bit to 100. I have to make 140, actually. Such such, (laughs) so low. Trust me, there's a lot more names on the list now. Um, I think if you go through your your generic top women's batters. Okay, Tammy Beaumont. Is on there, yes. Oh, wow. She's made 168 before. Alyssa Healy. Alyssa Healy is on there, 170. Have you said Nats of a Brunt? No, Nats of a Brunt is on there, 148. Wow. Is that the highest she scored in an ODI? Yeah. Probably. That was... In the World Cup? In the World Cup, mm. yes. Oh, Harman Preet Kaur, of course. How can I forget that 175? Harman Preet Kaur? Oh. 
Gosh, she's on there. I don't know. 171. I was scrolling up. It's like 178, 176, 173. Wait, 175. Yeah. Like, I can't forget that in English. No, 171, that was an unbelievable the knock against the West Indies. Oh, West Indies. Yeah. Then there was one against Australia as well. Mm. Evie, over to you. Did you say Beth Mooney? Not yet. Beth Mooney? Mooney. Sure. Has to be on there. Surely. Beth Mooney's top score is. 100 and 33. <laughs> oh. Seven runs away. Unlucky, Evie. Wow, that was a great, just a great uh, contest. And so Aisha's come back to win from 2-0 down. Just like last week. From the jaws of defeat. Yeah, you are on absolute fire. Came down, yeah, yeah. came down to the wire last week. Came down to the wire this week. How do you feel? Two wins in a row. You're on, you're on fire. Luckily, you're hosting the next podcast, so you can't win that one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the rest yeah. of us a chance. I missed my hat trick. Yeah. Well, that's okay. Week, we after. Next time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you need to rest. Give that brain a rest. <laughs> um, but yeah, that is that is our podcast done. Another, another long one there. Uh, a bit of editing for me to do, I think. Um, but that was another very interesting, interesting episode, I think. Gr- a great debate, I'd say, for our cricket conundrums. Um, and if any of the ICC people are listening, you, you now know what you have to do and go back on on uh, on your ruling, I think. Um, but Evie, thank you for, for joining us on this podcast. Hope you enjoyed your first one short episode. Yeah, it was great, and thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course, and uh, un- unlucky with with the, the quiz there at the end. I, th- I thought you were going to run away with it there. Devastated, mate. Aish, um, how did you enjoy that episode? It was another another good one. I thought we had a great debate, which I think is the, the key thing, really. Great, yeah. I mean, especially for this topic, I think uh, it was great to have two people who know the most uh, about this topic at the Sports Gazette. So it was wonderful to hear their thoughts on it. And I'm sure a lot of people uh, would have heard stuff from both Laura and Evie that they did not earlier know. And they can think about this topic and this debate in a different direction. So wonderful to have that. I'd urge more and more people to listen to the, uh, especially the cricket conundrum today. And uh, yeah, going forward to more such to more such debates. Definitely. I mean, and thank you both for coming on. Uh, Laura's had to, to run away. She's got an interview at the moment. Um, which I think she's probably on right now. Um, but yeah, it's great having you guys both on. Make sure you head over to the Sports Gazette and give all of the articles a read. Um, Laura in particular wrote a scathing, do you reckon it's the best way to describe it? Review of Sharon Davis's book, um, which is quite transphobic. That one's again. a must read. Um, Ayush obviously wrote a, a review on the tennis book on... Yeah, that was Althea, the, the, uh, yes. the bi- biography on... Uh, tennis player Althea Gibson, an unknown story, but a story that everyone really should know. Very much so. And they had a ep- uh, podcast episode on that as well, which I listened to and was really, really good. Um, but yeah, thank you all for coming on. Uh, and we'll be back in just a few days, actually, for the next episode, where we're doing a women's test match special. So we'll be talking about England against India, which is happening later this week. Thank you all for listening. And we'll see you next time. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.